0: Hey there, it's Debbie. Today's episode is a special re-release of a favorite conversation from the archives. Unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one before. And even if you have, you just might get something completely different from it this time
1: around. The other huge benefit to practices like this are that it allows you to, over time, be less reactive and more intentional. And that's a huge gift for everybody. It's a huge gift for you, and it's a huge gift for everybody who you would interact with.
0: Welcome to Till Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reaver, and I have a very special episode for you today. While most weeks I bring on parents, experts, and coaches doing work specifically relating to raising differently wired kids, my guest today is an expert on life, specifically how to live a good life. I'm talking about Jonathan Fields, a mega firm lawyer turned award winning author and serial entrepreneur, an expert in applied personal development and human potential. Jonathan is also the man behind the Good Life Project podcast, which is consistently ranked as one of the top podcasts in the world with more than 1 million downloads a month and a large global audience. I'm one of those million, and it was through listening to Jonathan's podcast that I got connected to his books and a project he ran a few years ago called Revolution U. Revolution U was actually a significant support in helping me when I was first developing what would become Tilt Parenting. So in that way, I consider Jonathan to be one of my most important mentors. His most recent book is How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science and Practical Wisdom. And so today I asked Jonathan to talk with us about his book and what we as parents raising differently wired kids can learn about creating more purpose and meaning in our daily lives, even when we may sometimes feel as though we just don't have the bandwidth or the energy or wherewithal to do so. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Jonathan. I am really happy to be bringing you onto the podcast and to have this conversation with you today. And just to kick things off, would you mind just taking a moment to introduce yourself and just tell listeners what you do in the world?
1: So I am a father, a husband, I live in New York City. And um, I'm also an author. Every couple of years, a book magically appears out of my head. I travel around the world speaking And I run a company, I'm the founder of a business called Good Life Project, where we produce podcasts, media events, trainings, really all focused around the bigger question of what it means to live a good life and a lot of the more granular questions around mindset, health, vitality, work and relationships.
0: Yes. And just to share, it was through your book, Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance that I first learned of your work and then became a total Good Life Project fan and have been consuming your just incredible interviews with the most fascinating change makers and social change agents and thinkers and makers for years now. They have been just hugely inspiring for me. And, you know, for listeners out there. I recommend if you're looking for a burst of inspiration, definitely check those out. And I want to spend most of this conversation talking about your book, How to Live a Good Life. But before we go there, you are very much a part of how I created Till Parenting because of some really interesting work you were doing around this idea of social change revolutions and I actually had the chance to participate in something you offered called Revolution U. I think I did that in 2015. And that was a really critical piece of my development of this podcast and the revolution that I'm working to push forward on behalf of parents like me, parents raising differently wired kids. So before we talk about your book, I was just wondering if you could take just a minute to explain that aspect of your work.
1: Uh, When I was in college, like way, way, way back when I actually had hair. I was a DJ. And I think that was one of the early things that turned me on to this really fascinating dynamic where one person can sort of be behind a booth and by simple choices that that person is making dramatically affect the energy of large numbers of people. And a chunk of years back, it was actually um, when we started seeing a lot of changes happening sort of geopolitically, I got really fascinated by the idea of nonviolent revolution and how large numbers of people would move to action um, and join together to try and make some really big mission-driven thing happen. And so I started studying, you know, the theory of nonviolent revolution and and how that actually happens. And that led me to the work of one particular professor named Gene Sharp, who actually recently passed, and um, who was really... Uh, the guy who wrote the playbook for most of the revolutions that have happened around the world. And then I got really curious also as a lifelong entrepreneur, could you take some of these ideas and somehow apply them in the world of conscious entrepreneurship to build either a social venture or a movement in a very different sphere? You know, Could you take these ideas and, and translate them or would it just completely bastardize them? Would it fall apart? Would it not work? So I started geeking out. Um, I'm very much a, a maker slash scientist. You know, I go deep into research in the name of creating things um, that hopefully go out into the world and help people. And, and this led to a, a pretty deep project that led me to develop a framework to, that, that essentially lets you do that. And originally, it was just supposed to be for me because I wanted to figure out how I could do that with the things that I was building. And I shared the idea, the framework, when it was in, actually in very rough form. In a small private event in the form of a sort of a rapid-fire keynote, um, there were about 90 people in the room. It was never supposed to get out. Um, I had never shared it with anyone before, and I was very hesitant to do so. And the whole time I was speaking, and heads were down, there was almost no interaction at all. And I thought, you know, people just thought I was crazy, and they (laughs) couldn't wait for me to get off stage. And... I finished, and there was a beat of silence, and then a standing ovation. And then people were chasing me down, saying, <laughs> "What is this? Where did this come from? How how can I get more of it? You know, do you consult? Is there a book?" And I said, "No, no, 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 no." <laughs> um, that led to a series of um, of sort of follow on talks with bigger and bigger audiences, and eventually, you know, that led to the way that we started jamming together. Which was um, there was such a strong call for some sort of teaching experience around these ideas that we created this course um, that kind of just put it out into the world for anyone who wanted to say, well, you know, would this work for what I'm doing to help grow it? And, and happily, you became one of the awesome people who uh, became part of that.
0: Yeah, the timing for me was just so ideal, because, you know, I didn't know if I was going to write a book first, or, you know, I, I knew I was going to create till probably since Asher was five or something. And uh, just kind of, revolution, you appeared. And I was like, that's it. So yeah, listeners, again, this is just how I helped so many of you have written to me about the manifesto and, and just that it's really connected with you. And, and it was through working with Jonathan that I really wrapped my head around the ideas that I wanted to share. And so that's why I feel I do feel like you're part of this. So it's really, uh, it just means a lot to me to have you on the show. Mm -hmm. It's really cool.
1: And it's an honor on my side to have been a part of anything that you're working on right now. I I just think what you're up to is just so important.
0: Thank you so much. So, okay, I want to talk about your book. Um, You wrote a book, How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science and Practical Wisdom, which came out maybe a year and a half ago, or is that about right? Yeah,
1: about that. It was just around the end of 2016, actually. So yeah, just around there.
0: Yes. And a kind of a different direction for you. I think it's super relevant for my audience. And again, not The typical kind of conversation that we have, but I think parents like me were really hungry to find tools and strategies for to living more fulfilled lives, especially when many of us feel like we don't have a lot of choice and we're constantly in reaction mode. It's kind of the way we move through our life on on any given day. So, I want to get into some of the the key takeaways from your book, but could you tell us? Kind of generally what it's about and yeah. and who you wrote it
1: for yeah you know um so I'm 52 I'm sort of you know in in that place in my life where I'm've <laughs> I've had incredible highs and I've also been knocked around a whole bunch as well and I've got a family and responsibilities and obligations and I'm not at a point where you know I'm just gonna blow blow everything up because I want to go and do something different and what I found was that um, a lot of, you know, sort of quote self-help books and offerings were were really kind of more tailored towards people who are a bit younger, um, or maybe a bit more metaphysically wired, um, which is fine. But I wanted to really speak to the audience that I knew was a lot of the Good Life Project audience, a lot of our listeners, a lot of the people who've been to our experiences, who tend to be more like me. And what we really wanted is practical, vetted tools and ideas that would just where you could wake up in the morning and just have a sense for is there a little something I can do today that will make me feel more alive that will help me feel a little more in control that will help me feel like I'm flourishing I'm happier I'm more connected to people around me and I knew also that I had to I had to both write the book in a way where it could be consumed in little bits and chunks at any given time you didn't have to sort of read it in a big linear fashion like a tome and that whatever I offered had to also be Something that was fairly quick and easy to do, even though the benefit of doing it might not be experienced until you started doing it on a regular basis and it became more of a practice. And and I also had the benefit of having spent years and years now diving into just reams and reams of academic research and also sitting down with hundreds of some of the most incredible people, innovators, primary researchers um, in almost any field in the world and asking them questions and learning from them. And I wanted to kind of distill that and share it. And that's really what the the book was about. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, you talked about just making it something that people could jump in and jump out of and, and through the daily explorations. And I want to talk about some of those specifically, but that's one of the things I loved about it was it was so tangible, you know, it's so practical. You, you really tell people exactly what they can do if they want to play in these different areas. And that's not something you find in a lot of self help books, you know, that you can really just take it, and it's almost like a toolbox in that way.
1: Yeah, it's funny you use the word toolbox because that was kind of the way I was thinking about it. Um, there, there, there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but a lot of it requires you to spend a lot of time just learning it, and then a lot of time doing it. So even if it works, and even if it's great, if it doesn't, if it doesn't work with the way that most people live their lives these days, it's just it's not going to make a difference. And I don't, you know, I don't really have an interest in writing a book just because I feel like I've got something to say, you know, I'd like it to actually in some way move people. So, so that was why we made some of those decisions to really just try and say, okay, so how do we, you know, how do I not only express my craft as a writer, but also make this genuinely of service to the people who most need it?
0: And so, you know, you break things down, you break your ideas down into three buckets, which, you know, I was thinking, which of these is most relevant to parents with differently wired kids, you have connection, contribution and vitality. And really, I couldn't even say that just one is because they all feel like they're such a critical part. And I guess that's probably the idea, right, that we need pieces of all of these aspects in our lives.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think of, you know, people are always asking me the question, you know, like, what's your definition of a good life? What does it mean to live a good life? And um, the simple model is if you think of your life as three buckets, vitality, connection, and contribution, and your vitality is about optimizing your state of mind and body. Your connection is about cultivating deep and meaningful relationships and contribution is generally about contributing to the world in a way that fills you with a sense of purpose. And the fuller those three buckets persistently are, the better your life is. And if any one runs dry or gets really low, it becomes a drag on all of the others. It means that you can't fill the others. So it's not just about one, it's about all of them. So there really is a deep relationship between all three. And it's funny because people often ask me, what is, what do you see now that the book's been out in the wild for a long time and tens of thousands of people have interacted with it? You know, it's which one is commonly the lowest? (laughs) Um, And I think it really depends on sort of who you are. But, you know, what we've seen is that uh, vitality is always one of the ones that takes a really big hit because we tend to surrender that in the name of being of service either to work or to family, to people who we love and we want to make sure are are okay. So we kind of figure, you know, let me make them okay or let me meet my deadline, you know, I can always come back and sleep more or eat better or meditate or whatever it may be. And the truth is, it's sometimes hard to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah,
0: know. yeah. I interviewed a lot of parents like me when I was working on Differently Wired. And that vitality piece, which, you know, often came up just in the form of self care, when I would ask mm-hmm. people like, well, what are you doing for yourself? And invariably, it would be the question that was met with silence and then crying or, you know, it just it it is especially when we're running around and, you know, we're managing schedules and therapies, or we're negotiating, just having to feel like we're not in control of our schedule, because maybe we're dealing with meetings or unexpected phone calls for pickups. And it is so easy to let that piece slide. And, I think it's so important for everybody, but even more so, you know, for parents who are already kind of spread thin or, or running thin, that piece is just critical.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I'd love to sit here and say, well, you know, there's a really easy way to fit all this in if you have a differently wired kid or if you have multiple differently wired kids and you know, you just have to do this and this. But that would just be so wrong of me to do because the reality is life can sometimes be hard. Like, let's actually just acknowledge the fact that there are going to be moments or sometimes extended windows where it's just really hard, mm-hmm. you know, and you are going to be really stressed and you're going to have very little time in your life to do those little things, you know. So I think it's really important to to acknowledge that and to honor it and to not say to somebody, well, this is just, you, you're just, it's just a priority thing. It's like, no, like my priority is going to be my kid. And if my kid is suffering or there's like a million things I need to do, you know, for most parents, they're always going to tell you, I will, you know, like I'll fall on the sword to make my kid okay. And at the same time, we also, I think, have to acknowledge that and accept it. And at the same time, say, in order for us to be most of service to our our children, our families, our partners in life, there's got to be some way, even a moment here and there, there's got to be something that we can do to make us physically and psychologically okay, or else we, we will crash and burn. You know, we will melt down in a major way. I I, I make the analogy to like an, an Indy 500 race. Like if you if you watch really long high speed races, what you see really quickly is that the cars all pit stop along the way, and the reason is because they have to have maintenance. They get new tires. They get gassed up. They get new shocks. They get the windows cleaned and stuff like that. And um, there's no option not to do that. And if you don't do it, then eventually the car grinds to a halt, the engine explodes, and you have to take way more time out than if you did it in little bits and pieces along the way. And I think it's kind of the same thing with with people. We kind of think we don't have time, we don't have time, we don't have time. And on a day-to-day basis, that is the feeling, that is the experience. And at the same time, if you end up breaking down, if you end up physically destroyed, then your body uh, is going to actually Make you stop for a much longer time and in a much bigger way and a much more dysfunctional way than had you taken three minutes here and there to do it. So again, I'm not there is zero judgment on this. I get it. Life can be really hard. And at the same time, the more that we can just find little tiny windows along the way, it doesn't have to be these big things. you don't have to meditate for a half an hour every day. But if you can just find ways to hit pause, to refuel, to expose yourself to a little bit of nature, to eat something a little bit better, to be aware of things, you know, those can be difference makers, even though you don't feel like they're doing a whole lot in the moment, there's a cumulative effect to the tiny little things you do along the way.
0: Mm, yeah. Does that make
1: I'm, sense? I mean, does that resonate with you?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And I, I appreciate you, you know, also acknowledging how so many people how so many parents feel and are going through their their lives. I think that piece of even just the awareness, and just knowing that it's something that you want to work into your life. And you want to remember that you're allowed to have a purpose that's yours outside of raising your child or all of these pieces. It's really easy to just be like, well, I'm lacking in those. So I'm just going to shut that door for now because I can't deal with it. And I'm failing. And instead, be compassionate with yourself and don't judge yourself and just consider it a work in progress. And as you said, looking for those moments, I write about looking for the bright spots, which for me might be literally one interaction with Asher, which was really positive or signals some growth or whatever it is. And I can, if I just stop in that moment and notice it, as you said, those things add up and they do make a difference. We'll be right back after this quick break.
1: Can actually, um, it brings up something. I'm really curious. I want to ask you about this because I'm curious what your lens is on this. So a chunk of years back, I owned a yoga studio in New York City, and, and, I, and I taught yoga for seven years, and you know, we had a, a big staff of people, and, and for a part of those years, we taught kids yoga too, little kids. And there was an experience where at the end of, of every one of these classes, the teacher would generally have the kids all lie in a circle on their backs with their eyes closed and place like a little sandbag in the shape of an, an animal all over over their eyes and over their belly and and invariably parents would come and they would peek in the room and they would freak out they're like did you drug our kids <laughs> because they would tell us you know like our, our, our kids are, are are screaming they're really challenging they're they're bouncing off the walls they we don't we we don't know what to do with them at home and somehow we come here and this happens and I'm I wonder if part of a a potential way for parents to actually carve out the time to take care of themselves would be to find other experiences and people who can provide experiences for their kids that let their kids find center while also having a dual purpose of creating the time for you to find center too. And again, I I don't, I can't comment from the standpoint of having any um, information about who in that class may have been differently wired or not. But um, I just, it always kind of stayed with me. And I was like, you know, I've seen so many times little kids respond so differently to a change in environment and a change in the people who are sort of like, quote, in charge in that environment. And at the same time, create breathing room for a parent. I'm just, I'm just curious what, like, what, your responses to, to that observation.
0: Yeah, I think it's so interesting. It brought up a lot of different things for me. And even just the first little thing is that I did postnatal yoga with Asher. And he was the kid who was just, you know, wailing, mm. <laughs> you know, everyone yeah. else's with you know, and that instructor would pick him up and carry him over and sit on a bouncy ball in her kind of Zen state. And I would just surrender finally and often cry because I was so relieved that I was having this break. And he would often just settle in with her. So anyway, just hearing that story made me think of that moment and how grateful I was for that. Yeah, I think it's about, for a lot of us, it's about finding the right person. I do think our kids are super tuned into our energy. So they're often aware of what we're feeling before we are, right? And so if we're not doing that work on ourselves, it's really hard for them to respond in a positive way to suggestions of breathing or meditation or yoga or whatever it is, you know, that we're coping routines, whatever it is we're trying to help our our child learn how to do. And, but with the right person, yeah, I think it, it's absolutely makes sense and it, and it's doable. And I've seen it happen with, with Asher too. Um, the right person is like a magic elixir or something, you know, your child can respond to them and, and it's a really cool thing to see. I would also just add to that, that one of the things that I do personally and that maybe can be helpful for listeners is I've worked really hard in Asher's case to, teach him to love nature. I don't know how I did it. It took me a long time because I used to take him hiking and he he would just resist and stomp and, you know, just not be into it. And that's really kind of an important centering calming place for me. That's kind of my church, you know, if I were to have a church and, you know, now he'll hike with me. And so, he's getting what he needs and I get what I need. And it's a way for us to yeah, just both take care of ourselves. And it's deepened our relationship. So there I think there's also possibilities of trying to discover what it is that you can do together that is self care for you and also your child benefits from.
1: Yeah, I mean, that all makes so much sense to me. And 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 you and I, you know, nature is a huge reset for me also. And I think um, and that's part of the research that I shared in the book, too, is that it's not just you and I, it's, you know, we are we're wired as human beings for that. To literally change not just our psychology, but our physiology. I mean, you know, it it literally reduces inflammation in your body um, to be in nature. But, and the response to a lot of people is, well, that's nice if you have a forest next door. (laughs) Um, But the cool thing is that what the research also shows is that really subtle changes like, as small as having a plant in view when you're inside actually makes a difference as well. So even tiny things like that can make it make a change. Mm,
0: that's so cool. Um, okay, so I actually went through the book again, and was looking at some of these daily explorations again, to see like, what are a couple we could touch upon, uh, that are especially relevant. And again, I think they all are. But I just wanted to ask you about a few things. One I wanted to start with, you talk about cultivating compassion. And in that you actually tell a story, which I had read about in the news and then to read it again. And it, and it specifically involves uh, the differently wired community. So can you talk about that takeaway and why you included the story of Kevin Moonlow?
1: Yeah. So, so Kevin was in uh, the King and I on Broadway and um, there was a performance one night and apparently um, during the performance, there was a mom who brought a child and the child uh, was having a lot of outbursts. And the audience turned hostile against the mother and the child. And later in the show, um, you know, Kevin looked up to see that the two seats that they had previously occupied were empty. You know, like they, they left. And so he took to Facebook the next day not to lambast the person for disrupting the show, but to actually kind of rail in a socially conscious way against the audience for being so incredibly intolerant and devoid of compassion. And, you know, to say, like, who knows, maybe this mom had had a child who was autistic or differently wired in some any number of different ways. And, you know, they've been working for a long time to build up to this moment to come to the show. And, and she was doing the best she could. And the child was doing the best they could. And they did, you know, last as long as they could. And instead of You know, being received. You know, this happened also at a very dramatic moment in the show, where it was very emotional for a lot of people. And he just he said, you know, to be received with so little tolerance and so little compassion is just this. This is not what we're here to do. This is not the way that we're here to be. And um, you know, I I thought it was it was telling both about I think the state of culture these days. And and about the the state of compassion in culture these days, and um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that compassion is really important, and that it also is a trainable experience, and it's something that I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense for us to both cultivate it in ourselves, and um, you know, for for anyone to be able to cultivate it, just the way they move through daily life. I remember. Uh, a couple of years back, I sat down with Sharon Salzberg, who's this you know wonderful insight teacher and meditation teacher, and she told me that on the way over to the studio before we taped a conversation, she was walking down the street doing something called a metta or loving kindness meditation, and she was literally just looking at strangers on the street, and as they'd walk by, she would think to herself, "May you be happy," and another stranger would walk by, and she would think to herself, "May you be healthy," and another stranger would walk by, and she would think to herself, "May you, herself, May you live with ease." And she literally just moved through her day and, and walked down the street offering these these intentions of loving kindness to complete strangers. And she didn't do it for them. She did it for her because it changed the way that she was in the world. And, and there's actually now really compelling research that shows that that practice is one of the things that actually allows us to train compassion in ourselves.
0: That's so great. Yeah, I love that meditation. And just imagine, right, if we if we all were doing that in the world how different things would be. It's kind of mind-boggling to imagine the energy that could be shifting. I think the compassion piece is so relevant to parents who with the differently wired kids because of that compassion piece for yourself. So many of us don't it's, you know, maybe tied into the self-care piece, but we can be so hard on ourselves and, you know, that we're not doing enough or placing blame or the guilt and all those pieces. And then there's the compassion to your partner. If you have a partner in this parenting journey, that piece is so critical because it's tricky if you're not on the same page and and you're both dealing with challenging situations with your child through your own lens. And it can be hard to remember to show compassion to your partner. And then there's compassion to your child for who they are you know, which they don't get a lot of, you know, from some of their teachers or other things, they get a lot of, you know, you're screwing up, or your behavior is not acceptable, or we need to make these changes. And when we respond to atypical kids to any child with compassion, it's incredible what can happen for them. And then I also talk about compassionately educating everybody else, you know, we have a lot of work to do in shifting this paradigm, and the people who don't get it and i think it's really important that we find a way to be compassionate while we're educating them and kind of clueing them into what's going on
1: yeah i mean i think it's an important point to make also is that you know it's you it can compassion operates at a number of different levels um both to and from um yeah and you brought up the idea of self-compassion which is just so important also it's funny the um one of the ethical teachings in yoga is a Sanskrit word, ahimsa, which translates roughly to nonviolence. And when most people first learn about the concept, they think, Well, okay, so the teaching is, you know, nonviolent. Like part of my ethical constraints is that I'm I am to be nonviolent to others, like cause first, cause no harm. But what they don't think is that part of that same teaching is nonviolence towards self. Like how do I not be violent towards me? Because it's very hard. To carry that out into relationships with others if you are not cultivating the ability to avoid violence towards yourself, and compassion is one of the things that you know like let you get to that space,
0: yeah, and I think too, so many of our kids are perfectionists, and we're modeling for them, like oh, they're yeah. watching it, everything <laughs> we're doing, so
1: right we're like, where's this coming from? It's this crazy new phenomenon in society It's like, hmm, hmm gee, I wonder, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you. I don't know if it's the first moment. but one of the early explorations in the book is own the unknown. And for me, you know, I think that is, I know there are no guarantees in any parent's journey. And that's all good and fair. And I think for parents with atypical kids, we often feel like we're just have absolutely no clue what the future looks like. And that being uncertain about so many things and what this is going to look like and what is the journey like is really that's probably one of our biggest challenges. So I wonder if you could just talk about owning the unknown directed towards parents who are feeling like they want to have more information than they do.
1: Yeah. Um, and it's a completely natural response. We want control. We want security. We want to know what's coming next. We want to know everything's going to be okay. And to the extent that you can gather information, you know, take action, do what you can do to, to make that happen, do it. You know, but the sort of like the root cause of suffering is trying to make certain a future, which is by definition not able to become certain. And we spend so much of our lives trying to make certain that which can never become certain that that translates to spending so much of our lives basically embracing suffering in the name of something we can never have. So that's a really hard thing to deal with because we're actually, um, neurologically wired to experience the unknown, to experience uncertainty. As physical and psychological unease, the amygdala, the fear center in our brain, lights up and sends um, both electrical impulses and chemicals coursing through us that make us want to throw up, that make us want to run, that make us feel physically and emotionally uncomfortable, and we just don't want to feel that way. So we try and do everything not to, rather than saying... There are some things that I can control. There are some things that I can't control, and no matter what, I will never be able to lock down the future. So, you know, it's the Serenity Prayer when it comes down to it, right? Do what you can to control what you can control, and then the work is not to try and then control the rest of it, but to say, okay, of the things that are lie in the unknown, how can I? cultivate a sense of equanimity as much equanimity as as is possible as much ease as is possible as much acceptance in this state and allow um, what I have no control over to happen and then know that I'm, I'm cultivating the stillness and developing the skills to respond in whatever way that I can respond when it happens sometimes that'll be really effective sometimes it'll be a total meltdown and disaster but when you pile on the anxiety of expectation on top of the reality of the unknown, what you're doing is you're compounding suffering. So it's, you know, the, the idea is, can I, can I essentially train in the alchemy of uncertainty so that, um, and, and one of the most fundamental ways to do that, that I know of is uh, meditative practices, you know, that is, that's my go-to practice. And I, for me, it's my, my every day. I wake up every day in the morning and I, I do some breathing exercises to just kind of bring myself into a center place. And then I, I do a, a mindfulness practice first thing in the morning. And um, it's changed my life. It hasn't necessarily made it easier. It hasn't made it more certain. But what it's done is it's helped remove the layer of suffering that comes from me trying to control um, circumstances that I can't control. And it's made me the other huge benefit to practices like this are that it allows you to, over time, be less reactive and more intentional. And that's a huge gift for everybody. It's a huge gift for you, and it's a huge gift for everybody who you would interact with.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break. Yeah, thank you for that. That's so powerful. And that word suffering you used several times when you were describing that. And I think that's such a powerful word. And I think it's appropriate. You know, I I think that we don't realize that that's really what's going on, and that we are compounding it by being so kind of stuck in swirling around in the unknowns and spiraling about the future and and all of those things.
1: So yeah, but by the way, um, Shout out to a dear friend of mine, Susan Piver, who's a Shambhala Buddhist meditation teacher and a fabulous New York Times bestselling author and all the other yada yada. Um, She has a book. I don't know when this is going to air, but she has a book that's soon to come out called The Four Noble Truths of Love. And for any grown up who is in a relationship where there's a huge amount of sustained uncertainty and mess and lack of control within the relationship, this is such such an important book. I would definitely encourage you to to read that book, it's um I you know I'm married a long time now and in a relationship a long time, and I learned so much. Um, and it's it's all a it's it's really builds on these ideas, but it applies them very specifically to long term grown up relationships.
0: Mm, that sounds fascinating. I will yeah. uh, listeners, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes page so you can check it out. I am going to check it out. It sounds great, and I want to be conscious of the time, and so. Before we say goodbye, I think we could we could spend hours talking about all this stuff. But before we say goodbye, could you just tell us where people can find you? And what's coming up for you? I know there's a camp that maybe some of our listeners would be interested in. So can you share that with us?
1: Sure. Yeah. So the best place to find everything that we're working on is just goodlifeproject.com. That's sort of the their center of everything, and as part of that, as you mentioned, we we have um every year at the end of August, the last three and a half days of August, I think, we bring around four hundred people together. We take over a kids' sleepaway camp, a beautiful hundred thirty acre sleepaway camp, for an adult summer camp, and it's sort of the best of all of the fun, amazing activities that you would do as a kid in summer camp, blended with really beautiful talks and workshops on everything from relationships to health and vitality and awakened careers. Um, But honestly, the most important thing that happens there is probably just you get to step out of your everyday life, you get to breathe again, you get to spend time in a safe place with just amazing, kind, open hearted, facade free adults and hit reset. So um, yeah, and so that's interesting to anybody. There's plenty of information at goodlifeproject.com.
0: Awesome. That's day. someday, someday mm-hmm. I will be going to your summer camp.
1: That would be fantastic. That
0: is uh, yes, it's it's on my list. I check it out every year and just with the Europe thing. it's it's yeah. hard to make it work, but it's 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 gonna happen. All right. Well, listen, Jonathan, I will let you go. Thank you so much for just sharing all this with us. Again, um listeners, I'll include links to Jonathan's book, his website, and all the other things we talked about on the show notes page. And Jonathan, thank you again for coming by.
1: Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says, Join the Revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com.
3: Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors who are also creative beings